Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 142, and it is called The Thyroid Health Starts in the Cells with Dr. Eric Balcavage. And today's show uh, is really about diving into why we don't just look at the health of the gland, i.e. the TSH marker when it comes to thyroid, and why it's important to have a look at what's happening in the cells. Now, uh, Eric is going to explain that really, really well in just a minute, so I'm going to leave that chat there, but I just want to tell you a little bit about Eric himself. Uh, What I love is that he uh, started out primarily as a chiropractic physician um, with a private practice in Pennsylvania. I love Pennsylvania. Shout out to anyone who lives over there. I have good friends there. Uh, And he then kind of, as he built his clinic, started realizing he wanted to bring more powerful tools in for his patients. So he became a certified functional medicine practitioner, board certified in integrative medicine, Uh, and really wanted to give his patients the best possible chance of improving their health and found that it wasn't just able to be done with one modality, if you like. So Reju Vagen is a centre for, um, sort of offers functional medicine and regenerative medicine combined with functional neurology and nutrition. And a lot of patients can now see relief having everything brought into the pieces of the puzzle uh, for everything to fit together. Gosh, I don't think I really said that in a very direct way, but you get what I mean. And uh, and Eric's passion for diving into the thyroid and all that it holds in terms of the potential for us to feel our best selves if we drill down deep, deep enough and see soon enough what dysfunction might look like then we can stave off uh, and prevent a whole host of really severe symptoms that occur once the actual thyroid gland itself is starting to be affected. So it's a really, really great episode for anyone out there who has a brother, sister, mother, cousin, friend at work, daughter, son, an uncle, aunt, nephew, niece who has a thyroid condition or who experiences all sorts of crazy symptoms, because the list is long when it comes to symptoms that could be caused by thyroid uh, dysfunction or thyroid hormone uh, imbalances, uh, please share this show with them because it is really going to help them get, get the confidence to start seeing a practitioner who could help them at a deep, deep level uh, get the support they need. So um, I... Just wanted to mention, gosh, I feel like half asleep talking to you guys this morning. I'm not. I'm really chipper. Uh, maybe it's because I know I have to leave in 10 minutes to do something that I'm a little bit distracted. But I'm going to take a deep breath and be present with you guys because what I'm actually just going to share is this month we have a wonderful show supporter and it's not a product. I've been thinking recently about how to mix this up and bring more mind support into the community. I had a lot of interest from last week's show where I shared the meditation work I've been doing uh, thanks to Dr. Joe Dispenza. And a lot of people have asked, you know, who's someone locally that's doing this or can I do it in a way that I can hook up to a community and it's not so expensive as going, you know, half the way across the world and doing an advanced retreat and 
And can I do it if I don't need to heal myself from anything? And all of these are really valid questions. And I have a very good friend, Guy Lawrence, uh, who's up in Byron in Australia. You might know him from having founded the 180 Nutrition uh, supplement powders, protein powders that you put in smoothies and things. He's since sold that business and started a coaching and meditation business called Let It In. And I, um, he, he randomly reached out, here's the synchronicity of it, to say, can I offer your listeners something? I know this is work that people need to do. And there are a lot of people who feel stuck or unhappy or can't see positivity in the future and, uh, or just simply want to fine-tune uh, their own lives and their own sense of self-love and love for others, their own uh, desire to have a lack of judgment of people and situations they see around them. And, uh, and I said, yeah, what, what would it look like? So Guy Lawrence from Let It In is offering everybody a free meditation. So you just download it. And uh, it's a heart coherence meditation. So it's really aimed at getting you to tune into your heart space and, uh, and, and feel a sense of peace and love not just for yourself, but for all that is around you. And uh, his five-step morning routine, uh, which he has honed uh, with the help of his community over the years to really make sure it was a super powerful morning routine. And this is something that is flexible. You don't have to not have kids to do this. Anyone has seven minutes to meditate. And if you don't, you should probably take an hour uh, if that's the kind of life and scheduling you got going on. And, uh, and he's offering this to you um, on the house all month. So the way you access that free meditation download and morning routine is letitin.com.au. And this is for anyone anywhere in the world uh, forward slash Alex, A-L-E-X-X. So I'll say that again, www.letitin.com.au forward slash Alex with two X's. And I hope you enjoy that. Let me know how you go with it in the show notes, comments boxes, uh, or on Insta if you um, if you get stuck in and, and notice some good stuff. Also wanted to just mention it's wonderful to have more and more of you joining the Low Tox Club. Imagine just supporting the podcast with $1 US a week. Uh, that's what it looks like. It's kind of like the price of a coffee that's been a bit poshed up, like a double strength almond milk latte or something per month and you join the club and we have wonderful little mini challenges we're just about to launch our next book club um, books and uh, and a few little secret interviews and lives that we do in there that uh, are really just to support the people who want to sign up and be a part of the community uh, you do it through patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com and you just find lotox life in there or you can always click through from the show notes it means we get to keep bringing you this show every week and it also means uh, we get to keep growing the amount of things we do for our community. So uh, I hope to see you in the club soon. Uh, there's always really good chats, beautiful, supportive people. There's some real champions in there, uh, Keisha, Mel, Alison, uh, Tara, just, that always go above and beyond to support people who are newer to leading a low-tox life with resources. It's really just a beautiful community and I, uh, and I hope to see you there. So that's it from me. I'm going to kick on and share this amazing conversation with Dr. Eric Balgavage. Enjoy, guys. Hello, Eric. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? 
I'm really well, thank you. I'm excited to have you here talking all things thyroid. I can't believe I managed to get through three years of running this podcast and not a single show on the thyroid. It is about time. So yeah. maybe, well, maybe unbeknownst to you, you've the whole time you've been doing your show, you've been actually talking about the thyroid physiology and just didn't realize it. Yeah, we could have been. This is true. It definitely comes up here and there. Um, and I guess to start, for those who aren't familiar with your work, um, I would love for you to share a little bit about how you became so passionate about the thyroid. Obviously, you were a young student, passionate about chiropractic, excited to become a chiropractor. And at what point in your medical career, I guess, did you see that you really wanted to weave um, the, the thyroid into how you helped people? Well, I I wasn't into practice too long and, and uh, I had a family member who was diagnosed with some health issues and one of those being a thyroid issue. And um, I did not know much about thyroid physiology at that time. I mean, my background in before I went to chiropractic school was I was a medical technologist. Um, I had really had full intentions of going to medical school uh, until um, car accident and uh, chiropractor was able to help me in, uh, where traditional medicine didn't. And um, and so I did have some me some medical background from that standpoint, especially from a lab standpoint. Uh, but you know, you go to chiropractic school, you learn about structure and and physiology and muscles and joints and and uh, thyroid physiology really wasn't one of the things we were learning about. But <laughs> when your family member um, gets diagnosed with health issues, and uh, you know, my family member got diagnosed with fibroids and and hypothyroidism and anemia, and I was like, man. Uh, doing a total hysterectomy and putting somebody on thyroid medications in their thirties just didn't seem like the right, um, right idea. So there must be something else that's going on. Um, and so I started digging into the thyroid physiology and, and to, in an effort to try and help uh, her. And then as you get into it and you start studying it and you start talking to your patients, you realize that, Hey, the vast majority of my patients are struggling with thyroid problems. Um, and the approach that allopathic medicine has, uh, I just thought was was missing a huge piece of what thyroid physiology is. And so um, started digging into it, started talking to my patients, realized how many of them were struggling with chronic thyroid issues. Uh, this is it, isn't it? You start talking to people, you're like, oh my gosh, does everyone have a thyroid problem? Yeah. And I, I think there's a lot more people struggling with thyroid physiology problems. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking forward know. to digging deep into yeah. what that is. Yeah. And so then, you know, you just kind of get into it. And I think what happens is, is that the more you take care of them, the more, more complicated cases you, you get and, and the digger you deep into it. And it, now here's where we are. Mm. And did you have a personal thyroid issue as well? You know what I did? I mean, we even, I don't know if whether it's when you study stuff, you develop stuff or what, but I think. I am so glad you mentioned that because I find that whole aspect of how the mind and where our energy goes impacts what unfolds for us is a very it's a can of worms but it's a very interesting um concept yeah so you know i guaranteed i wasn't doing some of the right things i mean uh, i was training for endurance events and uh getting up early i used to get up at 4 a.m every morning Ooh. you know we'd have you know you do training you do your patients you do your work uh you, you do some homework you do some research you do some training and then you go to bed at like 10 11 12 o'clock and i was kind of pride myself on the fact that i didn't need much hour much time <laughs> to sleep but it, you know 
it wasn't, you know, I'm in my forties and I'm running my own blood chemistry panel. And I'm like, how all of a sudden I'm insulin resistant and thyroid antibodies and my thyroid numbers are off. And I'm like, wait a second how could it be me? Right. I don't because think that was just your mind. I, I think this was like, you know, thyroid yeah. slash HPA axis. Go total yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I knew, I knew what I was doing wrong as soon as I saw the, saw it, but it, it was, I just didn't, you know, when you always think about somebody else, not you. Mm. So that kind of led me to go, okay, I got, I got to take my own advice here and I got to chill out, do things. I mean, you train in your forties and, and now into my fifties, like you're in your twenties and you're going to, you're, you're probably going to have some issues. So, um, we, it was just a matter of taking better care of myself. Mm. And I guess, you know, it'd be really great for people because, you know, quite often in uh, medical oriented podcasts, it's people just dive straight into the really, really nitty gritty um, biochem stuff. And I feel like for anyone just starting out trying to figure out what might be going on, I really love a good old 101. So could we actually do a bit of a 101 on sure. the thyroid? That'd be great. Absolutely. Yeah. So we have, um, you have all these cells in your body, right? And I mm. tell people like our body is like a country, right? Uh, and each, you know, the country gets information from all its people and the people are all the cells of our body. And so cells send signals to the brain, right? So if I'm, if the cells are cold, if you put food into the body, if there's a stress on the body, those cells send signals to, uh, to the brain. And you could think of the brain as the executive office, like in our country, it's the, you know, the president's office, right? All that information goes to the, to, to the head of the company. Um, and then the brain, hypothalamus, integrates all those signals and says, okay, what do we need to do here? Oh, we've got lots of signals coming in. Do we, need to, do we need to deal with all these signals or what's the primary thing we need to do? We're cold. Okay, we've got to increase heat. Uh, we just put a bunch of food in. We've got to increase energy. We're starting to store fat. We've got to burn some of this stuff off. And then the hypothalamus, if increased metabolism is what's needed, produces something called TRH, thyroid releasing hormone. And that TRH then goes to an area, another gland in your brain. It's called your pituitary gland. And the pituitary gland gets the signal to release something called thyroid stimulating hormone. Thyroid stimulating hormone is the, is the test that almost everybody sees on a thyroid panel. because Yeah, and that's where we get told we're normal, right? Right. Yeah. It's the primary screening test. Um, and then if, if TSH is being elevated, TSH then goes to primarily the thyroid gland, stimulates the thyroid gland to make thyroid hormones. There's a bunch of them, but the two primaries are T4 and T3. T4 is like what we call a pro-hormone. It's not quite ready for full-time action. It needs to be converted into something called T3. So about 80% of the thyroid hormone production by the thyroid gland is an inactive or pro-hormone uh, called T4. Mm -hmm. About 20, 10 to 20% is the active hormone T3. And once those guys are, are made, they're secreted from the thyroid gland, they go out into the bloodstream, they bind to carrier proteins, which are kind of like, um, here we would call it like a taxi cab or an Uber, right? Yep. That, that escort that thyroid hormone all into the, through the bloodstream all around the body. Mm -hmm. When uh, that Uber driver gets the thyroid hormone to the cells and tissues that need thyroid physiology, uh, need thyroid hormone, the thyroid hormone comes off of the thyroid binding globulin, that transport protein. And it becomes what we call free, free T4, free T3, which is what sometimes people will see free T4 on a, on a lab report, 
report, rarely do you see a doctor run free T3. But these are now the free hormones. Only the free hormones are what are available to get into your cells. And so then free hormones have to be actively transported into the cell, which is a key indicate is a key thing to say. Uh, and once that T4 and T3 are inside your peripheral cells, then the cells determine what happens to it. So there's de what they call deidinases, enzymes inside the cells that say, okay, we want to increase metabolism of this cell. Let's convert T4 to active thyroid hormone T3. The T3 binds to nuclear receptors, stimulates what we call genomic metabolism. T3 inside the cell can also stimulate a whole bunch of other non-genomic actions. Mm -hmm. T4 uh, or T3, once it comes into the cell, it's ready to go. But most cells prefer to convert T4 to T3 inside the cell to, to convert their own T4 to T3. Um, if the cell is trying to slow down metabolism, any T4 or T3 that comes into the cell, or, or I wouldn't say all of it, but a portion of that is downregulated or could be deactivated by what are the same thing, another form of deidinase enzyme that actually deactivates T4 to reverse T3 and T3 to T2. And so all a key thing for everybody to understand is hypothyroid symptoms. If you're struggling with hypothyroid symptoms, it is the result of reduced thyroid hormone inside your cells. Doesn't matter what the gland does, it's all about what's happening inside the cells. So mm -hmm. it's just a big, it, it's, I'm gonna say it's a simple big loop, but it's a massive complex loop. But essentially cells tell brain, I either need increased metabolism or decreased metabolism. Thyroid makes more thyroid hormone. It gets into the cells and then the cells regulate that thyroid hormone to either increase it, decrease it, or only use it for this, the aspects of physiology that are most important. Gotcha. So it begs the next question. Yeah. Uh, what are the key things we need to be trying to get on our thyroid panel if we think there's a thyroid issue? Um, because yeah, so, and, and yeah. how do we then uh, circumvent the situation where our doctor says, no, 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 you don't need those. You just need TSH. Yeah. So when we take a, when we think about a thyroid panel, TSH, T4, T3, free T4, free T3, um, T3 uptake, TPO antibodies, thyroglobulin antibodies, reverse T3. These are kind of the kind of the foundational ones in a um, non-allopathic model. Okay, mm -hmm. there, and you can also there's thyroid binding globulin is a test that can be performed depending on somebody's presentation, maybe TSI antibodies. But those are really all the tests that people take a look at in conventional medicine, or I should say allopathic medicine. Your doctor's going to look at really two tests. One is TSH, and the other one is free T4. Typically, mm -hmm. um, you're going to have a hard time convincing them and most of those docs to run anything other than those two for a couple reasons. One, they were told that TSH, and if you read the guidelines, and I've read like five sets of them, um, that TSH is really the only test that's needed to assess whether a person has a thyroid disorder. Wow. And so if you only need TSH as the initial screening test, then and insurance companies are paying for the test, at least here, um, and the doctor's gonna be responsible for any test they run, uh, most doctors are like, look, I'm gonna run the test that insurance covers, I'm gonna run the test that my guidelines say is the primary test to run, uh, and I'm not gonna run anything else if I don't need to, because I don't wanna get slapped on the hand for running a test that's unnecessary, 
and I don't want to be responsible for a test that I haven't really been taught what to do about it or what it means. Mm, so, that is exactly the same situation here in Australia. Yeah. So they'll run TSH. If TSH is high or low, then you'll start to see the next level of testing, which is usually to run that free T4. If somebody's thyroid hormone, their TSH is uh, really low, maybe they'll start to look at TSI antibodies. If it's elevated, I don't typically see many doctors here run anything differently. Uh, it'll be T4 and free T. It'll be TSH and free T4. So this really is a case of us finding a, a, a holistic practitioner to work with. Yeah. And I, listen, I, I sometimes come out strong against medicine. I'm not anti-medicine and I don't oh think gosh, doctors, neither am I. Yeah. This is more doctors, about like the, the two hard basket people who aren't being able to be sorted out in one way, knowing that they have options. Yeah. And so if, if my, if I'm, if I've been taught one way, I mean, my guidelines say one thing and my treatment model is, something that doesn't require any of those other tests, um, why would I run the other tests? It, I mean, just, mm. it's, not med it's not medically necessary, right? Air yeah. quotes. Um, the, so I tell people all the time, listen, if you want those other tests, uh, you probably aren't gonna get those run in a traditional allopathic model because they are not deemed medically necessary to run. And even if you get diagnosed with hypothyroidism, your doctor's not using any of those other tests as part of their tools. So mm -hmm. if you want to get them done, you really have to go outside that model uh, for two reasons. One, they're not going to run them or three reasons. Insurance company's not going to pay for them. And three, the person who ran, if you ask your medical doctor to run them and they, their only tool in the toolbox is, is thyroid hormone prescription, um, they're not going to know what to do with those tests. I mean, they, most of them don't, most people don't know what those tests mean. Uh, or what to do about it. So you don't, what gets measured gets managed. So if, <laughs> if you have to, if you measure it, you better be able to manage it because you're responsible for it. So I, I just think if you want it, you're going to have to go outside the uh, conventional insurance-based practices. Yeah. And let's talk about who and what kind of symptomology wants it. Like when, when do we start to think, hold on, you know what? I think I need to find someone who can run these tests. Well, I think that all comes down to what's your goal, right? So if you're a person who is very healthcare focused, you exercise, you're focused on sleep and you eat good quality food and mindset, all those things, then I would say every time you go to get a lab panel or you know, once or twice a year when you're getting blood work done, get a comprehensive thyroid panel done along with a comprehensive metabolic panel. And both those terms mean different things to different people. But mm -hmm. I run, I don't, I don't think I've run a just a thyroid panel in over 15 years because the thyroid panel is part, it's telling us a story, but if you don't have the rest of the book, it's like reading chapter five. I mean, mm. you don't know anything. You don't know yeah. what happened before. You don't know the characters. Who so the need... hell is Eric? <laughs> right. So I think if you're a person yeah. who's who wants a medical approach, right? As soon as you're tired of fatigued, then you ask your doctor, they'll run TSHT4. If you're looking uh, for to maintain health and wellness, then get it done at least once a year, along with a full metabolic panel, just to kind of, as a good screening test. And can if, you talk me through quickly the full metabolic panel? Yeah, so full metabolic panel, I mean, we're looking at blood sugar markers like mm -hmm. glucose, hemoglobin A1C, insulin. Some, sometimes you could do something like a leptin panel as well. Yeah. You want to take a look at vitamin Ds, both 25 and 125, which I think is the biggest 
one of the biggest mistakes that we make in functional medicine and allopathic medicine is we just run 25 OHD and it doesn't tell again the whole story. Uh, you need both of those tests to be able to assess vitamin D status along with like a good RBC magnesium. Uh, you wanna take a look at your lipids when you're taking a look at um, a metabolic panel. Now, you know, VLDL, LDL, I mean, obviously there's, um, there's comprehensive lipid panels you can get done, but from a basic metabolic standpoint, you know, triglycerides, cholesterol, mm -hmm. HDL, LDL, and VLDL. And it's really important, especially for thyroid physiology, because the, one of the number one reasons re that cholesterol levels go up is what we call cellular hypothyroidism. You have thyroid, you don't have, you have insufficient thyroid hormone to support metabolism of your cells. And so you'll start to see cholesterol go up. Let's talk about the guidelines, but they just kind of ignore it after they talk about it. Um, wow. the rest of the panel, That's a huge, that feels like a huge truth bomb there. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's disturbing. I mean, it's talked about in the guidelines, like, Hey, we see this with people who have hypothyroidism, but we don't think it's important to take a look at it. Hmm. Um, I, so it's weird. Um, the rest of the panel, definitely your electrolytes. You want to take a look at your uh, I think the iron panel is really key with especially making sure we have ferritin on there. Uh, I think there's a big misconception in, in, in medicine uh, as to what ferritin rep represents and what its range is, should be. Um, but I think that's crit critically important. And then all your inflammatory markers, uric acid, CRP, homocysteine, fibrinogen. You want to assess, is this a body that's in inflammatory mode? And if it is, that's the number one reason why you're going to have hypothyroid symptoms. So I think my basic metabolic panel with the thyroid markers on it is about 68 tests, something like that. Wowza. Mm -hmm. okay. So you want to get a good view of somebody. I mean, and then yeah. after that, once you have that initial test done, that's your baseline. And then if you're going to work on something, you can pick it apart and do individual tests later. But really, it's relatively inexpensive from a cash standpoint here in the States to have a panel like that done. Mm. Um, I mean, it's about a 10th of the cost if it was billed to insurance. So uh, it's totally worth it. So you can get a good bird's eye view of, Hey, where am I? Uh, obviously CBC and is in that as well. Um, but that gives you an idea, a direction to turn. You go, okay, I've got insulin resistance. I got malabsorption marker issues. There's probably GI. I mean, it gives the doc a good view of, okay, what's big picture? What's going on with this patient? What systems are compromised? And where do we go to find the underlying cause? Of yeah. Their Amazing. So that's great for the US listeners and for the Aussie listeners. Um, I know because I do this twice a year as, especially as someone recovering from mold illness, um, uh, it's about $500 Australian, so it's about $350 US for all of those panels, plus the ones that you can get for free on Medicare, which is our um, universal healthcare system. Yes, we have one of those. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, that's, so that's pretty good. I mean, here in the States, it's probably about the same, yeah. same cost. Yeah, so it's good. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I place a value on the preventative aspect and the subclinical things that you can discover in checking in on these things once or twice a year, because things show up that you can work on to build and heal the body before it presents as horrible stuff down the track. And I just see that as such an amazing investment. Yeah. And I think we see that. And I'm sure this, the model hasn't changed from, you know, country to country, continent to continent, which is we have an acute care model, right? Mm -hmm. in, in oh, yeah. In allopathic medicine, which is, hey, if it's acute, if you're bleeding, if you were in an injury, we're going to come help you. And that's awesome. I mean, we, 
we couldn't live without that acute care model. The problem is we've used that same acute care model or philosophy to treat health, to try and manage health, and you can't do the same thing. I mean, if I'm bleeding out, I need a drug right now to stop the bleeding, right? I need mm. emergency care. But uh, if I've got... Um, I've got a healthcare problem. I, I don't want acute band-aids for it. I want to get to the root cause issue. And we just don't do a great job of that here in the, in the States. And I'm sure it's probably similar uh, every, everywhere this podcast is being listened to. Mm, absolutely. And um, so, okay, so we get the results. And a couple of the questions I've had from the community in the lead up to our chat were around the confusion when various naturopaths and doctors they've seen about the results have a different idea about what the optimal ranges they wish to see are. And yeah. that can leave people feeling really confused and disempowered. What's your take on, on that whole navigating differences of medical opinion? So I think this comes down to a couple of things. One, you, when we take a look at ranges, there's two, range, there's two primary ranges we look at. The traditional lab range, which is really the disease range. So uh, I say it's like grades in school here, right? If, when you look at a range, it doesn't matter what the range is for a panel. The middle of that range is typically what we call the optimal range, right? Okay. Like the A range in school, the A grade, the perfect. Mm -hmm. And then really two, three standard deviations out is the disease range, like the failure range. Mm -hmm. And so your medical doctors are looking for disease ranges. And so they have one set of ranges. In functional medicine or integrative medicine, we're looking for op to optimize health, right? And yeah. so if we're looking to optimize health, we don't want to use the disease range. We want to use that mid-range, mm -hmm. as close as it is. And so when you're looking at what those ranges should be, in functional medicine, you're going to see your functional medicine doctor probably shrink that range, like and say, "Hey, it's a much narrower thing than your allopathic physician is going to allow." And your allopathic physician is going to allow is going to, or your allopathic physician may say, "Well, that's that's too narrow. It's too narrow from a drug treatment standpoint." Yeah. But it is that narrow range that starts to let us know that hey, we're deviating away from the optimal level. So I use the optimal ranges for the most part. I explain both uh, ranges to my patients. And those values may constantly shift and change because you know, I'm, I'm getting more science or research or I'm also taking a look at labs when, from a different view, I guess. So when I look at blood work, I think there's three things we need to understand. What's the range you want to use? Optimal versus funk, uh, optimal versus lab, right? Disease range. We want to use optimal range. And the second thing we have to look at is what is the lab telling us? We have to take that into consideration. Who's our patient? What's their symptoms? What medications they're on? Uh, what's their story? What's going on around them? Because sometimes lab values are normal and appropriate, right? We see the lab value is normal. Doesn't matter what range you're using. Lab value is normal. That's appropriate, right? Perfect. <laughs> Sometimes lab values are normal and inappropriate, right? So, hey, I'm hypothyroid. I got my hair thinning. My skin's dry. Uh, I'm gassy. I'm bloated. I really have all these symptoms of hypothyroidism and my TSH is normal. Matter of fact, it's almost functionally or, or at the lower end. And the doctor says, it's normal. You don't have a thyroid problem. Well, hey, doc, hold on a second. Listen to the symptoms. What's the patient telling you? What's their health history? Uh, maybe that value is normal, 
but inappropriate. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, so absolutely. In that situation, if you have systemic inflammation, systemic inflammation, you may see the inflammatory markers on your lab work and go, oh, this TSH is within normal range, but I've got five markers here of inflammation. So that TSH is actually probably being suppressed into a normal or low state, making it look normal, but inappropriate based on what my patient's telling me. Got wow. it? Wow. Yeah, got it. And then, so then when you and then when you go deeper than TSH and you're looking at T4 to T3 conversion, you can have the optimal here and the T4 can be there and the T3 can be there, but both of them are in the normal range, but because right. they're not synced up, yeah. that can cause so, symptoms, right? Yeah, so you yeah, so you want to take a look at ratios as well. Mm. There's two other pieces of that study of the lab assessment that you have to take a look at though. So we talked about normal and appropriate, normal and inappropriate, and then there's abnormal and appropriate. So given what's going ah. on, right, I, I, we may look at a lab range and say, wow, this person's uh, cholesterol is elevated. Okay, doc, we don't need to put on a statin. It's elevated, it's abnormal, but it's appropriate because this is a person who's got a thyroid problem and, it's, and the thyroid hormone's not working. So it is, it is abnormal, but it's totally appropriate for what the person's going through. Mm -hmm. If I fever is abnormal, right? But yeah. it's totally appropriate if I have an infection, okay? Mm -hmm. My white blood cell count is high. It's abnormal. Yes, but I don't want to suppress it because it's totally normal if I have an acute infection, right? Yeah. So we have to look at it through that window. And then obviously the, third, the fourth window is it's abnormal and inappropriate. So is this, the value is abnormal and it's, it's inappropriate for how our patient's feeling and functioning something's something's amiss right and so then we take a look at that so once we take a look at that so i look at all the labs what's the big theme going on here do we have a thyroid issue inflammatory issue insulin resistance whatever and then look at the values from are they in range out of range and then they are they appropriate or inappropriate based on what's going on and then even from the thyroid perspective i'll look at okay i don't I don't care what the normal value is per se, but what's the ratio? What is the body favoring? So I'm looking at a lab panel right now where a, T, a patient's TSH is 1.55, T4 is 7.8, both within the optimal range. T3 is, one, is 116, which is within the optimal range. Free, T, free thyroid index is 2. T3 uptake is a little bit low. Free T4 is 1.26 and free T3 is a little bit low. If, any, if her primary care ran the TSH and we got lucky and they ran the T4, the free T4, they would be, she would be told that she is, does not have a thyroid problem. But her reverse T3 is 28.5, which is above the lab mm. range, not even above the function range, it's above the lab range. Mm. So what's happening there? Her body is deactivating her thyroid hormone at yeah. the cellular level. So somebody might say, well, she doesn't have a thyroid problem. Uh, she does have a thyroid problem. She has a what appears to be uh, optimally functioning thyroid gland. I was but, just about to say, I like the penny dropped for me. I was like, so TSH, we think gland, and everything else, we think what's happening in the cells. Yeah, and so there's a problem. I mean, yeah, conventional medicine has said TSH is the best test for it because it tells us uh, it kind of gives us an idea of whether the gland is optimal working optimally. The problem with TSH is it's easily suppressed by a number of factors. Mm. So if it can be elevated or suppressed, 
by stress, by infection, by inflammation, by medication, how valid of a marker can it be by itself? And we have to consider the fact that the reason people have hypothyroid symptoms is because what's happening at the cellular level, not at the gland. Because if you take out somebody's gland and give them thyroid hormone, you could, they can run fine as long as everything downstream works. So we can't assume, A, that TSH measure, gives us a, a status of what's happening with thyroid hormone physiology in all of the peripheral cells. It's really just a kind of an indicator of what's happening between the hypothyroid pituitary and adrenal and thyroid axis, um, and what we call the central, more the central system. And it's not a great indicator of what's happening in the periphery. And this is a great, great result. This is a person who's struggling with chronic hypothyroid symptoms, has been told that she's fine, and yet her body is busy deactivating her reverse T3 or her T4 to reverse T3, and all of her inflammatory markers are elevated. So, does she, you know, I mean, this is a classic, what I call cellular hypothyroid case that's going to get messed because we only ran T, the doctor only ran TSH and T4, and she was deemed okay. okay. And so, what would you do with this woman? So, the everybody's a different case, but not. So, I mm. always say, always say that, you know, what caused your hypothyroidism is different than the person sitting next to you. So, the, it really still comes down to the foundational issues. What is the stressor? that is triggering the deactivation of thyroid hormone in the peripheral cells. So I think probably we, we back up here a, a little bit, and that is, think about, for everybody who's listening, think about what the thyroid gland does. The thyroid gland is like, does bulk output of thyroid hormones. The fine tuning of thyroid hormone physiology occurs in your cells, okay? Yeah. And so uh, it's like, I, I think we just spread mulch, right? And so somebody comes and dumps a big pile of mulch in my flower bed. That's like thyroid, the gland dumping out thyroid hormone. Now I got to spread it out, even it out and make sure it's all kind of where it needs to be. And that's kind of what happens within the cells. So what really triggers hypothyroidism, in my opinion, and from a lot of what I read is um, when you have some form of cellular stress, uh, that could be caused by a physical stressor, trauma, injury. It could be triggered by a chemical stressor, injury, trauma. It could be triggered by emotional stressor. It could be triggered by microbial stressor. Those are the four big categories, and then we can break it all down from there. But if you have some type of stress, creating stress within your cells, your cells have have we won't go too heavy into the weeds. Your cells have little sensors inside the cell that says, hey, life is good. You know, everything worked the way, you know, everything kind of balanced and turn on, turn off, no big deal. They also have sensors that say, hey, something is creating a stress, something's stealing energy from the cell. Something's triggering damage at the cell. We're going to go into danger mode. Okay. So typically the body runs in this state and cells run in this state, what we call a homeostatic state, which is balance, ease, non-stress. And then we have this regulating system that's called allostasis. So the difference is, um, let me think about it this way. If, if you had a teeter-totter, you guys have teeter-totters, you know what those are? Like a Where seesaw? Oh yeah, 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 seesaw. Close. Seesaw. So let's say I put you in the middle of the seesaw. Mm -hmm. Could you balance the seesaw evenly if I put you right in the middle? No weight on either end. Yeah. Yeah, easy, right? Yeah. That's homeostasis, right? Mm -hmm. Then if you put some weight on one end, let's say you put a five-pound weight or a 10-pound weight on that end, that's an abnormal stress, right? Mm -hmm. That would shift us 
And now to maintain and then this. And you'd be leaning saw, over. Yep. Right. To maintain the, maintain the seesaw straight, you just have to list or lean a little bit, right? Mm. That would be that I've shifted from homeostasis where I can stand balanced to an I'm now shifting into allostasis. I have to adapt to the stress to be able to maintain the homeostasis, to maintain that straight teeter or seesaw. Yeah. Got me? Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So what we have to feel, as soon as we put a stress on, on the cell or activate the stress response of the cell, the cell physiology shifts and changes. And the focus goes away from cell growth and cell development and normal regulation to danger and defense. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. So now the cell says, whoa, something's stealing energy. We've got something that we have reduced energy to begin with. And now what we're going to do is we're going to take this thyroid hormone. We're not going to use it to, re, to duplicate genes and make new tissues and cells. We're going to shut that aspect of thyroid physiology down within the cell. And we're going to use thyroid hormone to make more pro-oxidants, to make more toxins, to, to decrease some of the, to increase some of the more cell defense actions. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This kicks in, this danger signal kicks in something that's been written about called the cell danger response. Mm -hmm. And part of that cell danger response is to say, hey, we've got to reorient uh, these resources here for defense, kill the threat, and then we can turn physiology back on. And thyroid hormone physiology is part of that. So when there's cellular stress, the cell is trying to deactivate a good portion of thyroid hormone for its non-essential things for survival and increase thyroid hormone for the important things for activation and survival, right? And so yeah. the things that are most important to us, skin, hair, glucose into the cell become less important to the cell. And so those actions are shut down. That, act, that action, those actions that are shut down then trigger us to have hypothyroid symptoms, right? And gotcha. now we go, okay, I'm tired, I'm fatigued, but this is happening in the peripheral cells. It's not happening at the gland. So when this is happening in the peripheral cells, your TSH is normal. Your gland is fine. There's no problem up there. The problem is within the cells. And when you have this cellular, this cell danger response going on, and it doesn't matter what it is. I mean, if you're, if you're, if you don't sleep seven plus hours per night, that's a danger to your cells. That's going to deactivate thyroid hormone. Okay? Wow. If you snore, you mouth breathe at night, that is going to create hypoxia. That's going to create cellular hypothyroidism. That's going to create a danger response. If you think about negative things all day, that's creating a danger response. If there's a bacteria, virus, it doesn't matter what the path of the organism is. If there's an organism that, that's stealing too much energy, it's still triggering that cell danger response. And initially, the initial cells are, that are impacted by that, they're downregulating thyroid hormone locally. They're sending signals to the other cells around it saying, hey, we're under danger, we're under threat, right? Mm. And those cells go through the same cell danger response. They start to deactivate a good portion of the thyroid hormone. And so if it's short term, that's great. And we all go through short-term periods of hypothyroidism. Like anytime you get a virus for a few, for, you know, seven to 10 days, you're going through cellular hypothyroidism. You're tired, fatigued. You don't feel like eating. You, you feel like crap, right? And, yeah. and, we, and we're, you got a fever and all this stuff. You're undergoing cellular hypothyroidism right, right then and there. 
the good news is for most people that 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 cell danger response and that cellular hypothyroidism is short term. The immune system kicks in, it starts killing things, deals with the threat, and then physiology goes back. But if your cell stress is constant, right, and you have to adapt long term, I put like we keep that 10 or 15 pounds on one end of the seesaw, you have to adapt. If I have you leaning over like that for an extended period of time, in over a period of time, things start shutting down, right? Yeah. Muscles start to fatigue. In the body, when you have chronic long-term cellular stress, that's a, it's a lot of work for cells to deactivate that, all this thyroid hormone and be in this mode. So the next step, in my opinion, is the fact that the, is the immune system gets kicked in to go get rid of the source of the thyroid hormone, right? Attack mm. the gland. If I'm under cellular stress, if I'm in starvation, if I'm in threat, I'm trying not to increase cell metabolism. Instead of trying to deactivate thyroid hormone in all my cells, why not just turn it off at the source, which is what happens then. The body, when these damaged cells are in cell danger response, they release things called damps. These are damage-associated proteins. Those damps float, float around in the bloodstream. They send signals to the immune system to say, hey, I'm damaged, come help clean me up. But the thyroid gland specifically is very sensitive to these damps. And there's another thing called PAMPs that come from the organisms that may be in, in cells. The thyroid gland can perceive those things and start its self-destruction. Doesn't even need the immune system to attack, the, to have the shutdown or the autoimmune attack on the gland. And you'd think, Many times we talk about the autoimmune condition being like the mistake of the body. I don't think that's the case. I think what the body's doing many times is it's in self-protection mode. Mm. If, I have a, if I have a hose and I want to change the nozzle, right, just real quick, I'll pinch the hose, turn the nozzle, take the old nozzle off, put the new nozzle on. It's a little messy because I didn't turn, turn off the water, uh, but I got it done quick. That's short-term stress. You deactivate thyroid hormone locally. But if I have to turn off thyroid physiology long-term or slow metabolism down long-term, then the most likely thing to do is to turn off the valve, right? I'm not going to ask you to pinch the hose and kept it, kept, keep it pinched while I go to the store to buy a, a nozzle. <laughs> you go turn it off. So that's the autoimmune attack. And that process can go on for weeks, months, years, still have a normal TSH potentially, still have normal T4, but, we're, but thyroid antibodies are rising. And because most doctors never test thyroid antibodies, again, you never see it. So we're missing the key tests that, are, that really let us know that A, we have a thyroid problem going on at the cellular level, and B, we, we have an autoimmune attack on the gland, which is the number one cause of hypothyroidism is an autoimmune attack. We should be looking at it. And then three, we're waiting until the gland becomes so damaged before we step in and say, oh, yep, yep, you have hypothyroidism, your gland is being damaged, uh, we're going to give you thyroid hormone. Well, that's like saying, yeah, we're not going to help your blood sugar problems until you become a full-on diabetic, then we'll <laughs> jump in and help you. I mean, we wouldn't, it's just nonsense, but that's the model. And so I, I feel bad for the doctors who are stuck in that model, and I feel bad for the patients that get stuck in that model. But that's where, I, that's where functional medicine differs is we're saying, hey, let's, let's look at what's going on cellularly. Let's see if this is what's going on here. And then what do we do to address it? So I think if I spin back to your question, what do we do for these people? You have to identify what somebody's cellular stressors are. So 
is they have physical things that are creating the problem. Do they not sleep on a regular basis, which was an issue for me? Do they do they exercise, but they overtrain or improperly train? Uh, do they have physical injuries from work, things like that? Do they have poor respiratory habits? Do they mouth breathe or snore at night? Do they have a chemical stress? What do they eat? What is the food they're eating their problem? Is, are they gluten intolerant? Do they have some type of food reactivity? Are they getting loaded with heavy metals or toxins of some form? Do they have microbial organ, you know, microbial overgrowth, bacteria, yeast, viruses, uh, and other organisms that can trigger a cell danger response? And then do they have an emotional pathogen, right? Is their thinking really what's getting them? Because we blame you know, things like, oh, well, the economy or this or my job. No, the problem is your emotional pathogen, right? It's what's going on between the six inches of your ears, how you perceive something. It's not to say that you don't have your, your relationships a pain is uh, stressful and your kids are stressful. They, they all may be stressful, but it's a big part of it is how you perceive it, right? And so that I know sometimes people are like, well, you don't know what I'm going through. Uh, listen, we are, we're all going through stuff, but the same stress that could make you miserable could make the person right next to you as happy as could be. Could be. So it's, it is about perception. And so what we have to do is really to help people, it's a three-step approach. One is identify what are their stress ores that are creating the problem. We have to, two, we have to identify what organ systems and have become compromised due to this long-term stress, what we call this long-term allostasis or allostatic overload. And then three, we need to reduce or remove those stressors as much as possible because we, we're not going to get rid of everybody's stress, right? You're, not everybody can sell their home. Not everybody's going to get a divorce. Not, so what we don't need to do is we, we'd say, hey, there's, you know, there's, three 15 pound weights on that one side of the seesaw, you're not going to be able to remove them all. No, I'm not going to remove, but if I remove one and then add something that's a real good positive stressor to the other side, now I've balanced it out. I've still got some stress that's negative stress on one side, but I've balanced it out a little bit. And then the last piece is to say, all right, we need to support healing and repair with good diet, lifestyle, nutrition, and supplementation while the system's start to heal and recover because just because you think you've killed an organism doesn't mean the gi tract system is going to come back on on you know like tomorrow right that's going to take time and so if we do those four things i that's where people can heal recover repair and really do really well so so true amazing um and so like you're running me through all the stresses there. I was just thinking, I know there's a few people in our community that have had something like their gallbladder taken out, for example. And there is a lot of, a, there seems to be quite a big connection between thyroid issues and the removal of the gallbladder. They can't do anything about that stress that's been placed on the body. So how do you help a patient navigate something like that? Yeah, so they, it's important to understand too, when we go back to this whole idea that thyroid physiology touches everything. So mm -hmm. thyroid hormone is important inside the cells and controls almost every aspect of metabolism, okay? So we think big thing that if you've got what we call cellular hypothyroid, more deactivation of thyroid hormone than activation of thyroid hormone inside the cells, you're going to have problems, right? Yeah. You're not going to be able to make appropriate stomach acid. So you're going to potentially have increased potentiality for um, reflux, right? Heartburn, because you're not making enough stomach acid. That's going to create a problem where you're not going to then 
trigger enough bile secretion. And you need thyroid hormone to make appropriate bile. Um, you need thyroid hormone for pancreatic enzyme production. So anytime you have cellular hypothyroidism, digestion gets compromised, right? Mm. And you think about that and say, well, why, why would that happen? Well, if I'm under stress, right? If I'm running from the proverbial tiger or alligator, right? Do I need to, do I need to have digestion? I don't need digestion, right? That gets shut down. So I'm not putting thyroid energy towards digestion. I'm not putting it towards going to sleep. I'm not putting it towards having sex. So the least important things get shut down. So, so is what, this why people's libido tanks and why they end up like, you know, having issues with 15 billion foods and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, well, absolutely. Well, from a hormones perspective, again, it's a non-essential for, for survival. I mean, if you're running from a tiger, are you stopping to have sex? I mean, you could, but I, you know, that's not- a That is going to be the shortest shag of your life. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, that's how we kind of have to think about this from a really primal standpoint. Yeah. I'm, I'm either in fight or flight or freeze, or I'm in rest and digest. And so when we talk about thyroid physiology, when we have cellular hypothyroidism, then we can talk how to better define that in a bit if you want. But if you have this cellular hypothyroidism going down, going on, hey, stomach acid production is going down, bile formation is going down, um, pancreatic enzymes going down, all of your GI function and physiology is going down. So what's going to happen? You're going to have bacterial overgrowth. You're going to have this um, elevation of dysbiosis in the GI tract. And both the combination of decreased thyroid hormone leading to gallbladder problems, the bacterial overgrowth leading to, bac to um, uh, bacterial overgrowth or to bile dysfunction or, and, and problems is going to create an issue. And yeah, you can't take, if somebody has their thyroid or their, uh, their gallbladder taken out, you can't replace it. But you, that is a person who's going to need then long-term gallbladder support along with fixing their cellular thyroid physiology. So that, that part, it works well. It's not good enough to just say, yep, you're hypothyroid, I'm gonna give you gallbladder support. Because if we haven't reduced the cause of their cellular hypothyroidism, we've done really nothing for the patient. We've just- so, Yeah, let's talk about that then. It seems like a yeah. good time to dive deeper into that. Yeah, so I'm sorry, what part did you want to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, you know, he said we could circle back to the cellular um, hypothyroidism later. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, let's yeah. do that now. Okay. So, number one, hmm. when, anytime I look at lab work, I want to look do I have markers of inflammation on blood panel? And not just one test like CRP. And, you know, if some of the better tests, we're not testing, right? We're not testing. Most times people aren't getting IL-6 tested and NF-kappa B, these big markers. So we go with the basics, right? Do I have uric acid levels that are elevated? That's a sign of breakdown of DNA. Do I have elevated CRP? Do I have elevated homocysteine? Do I have elevated fibrinogen? Do I have elevated RDW, red cell distribution width? Do I have elevated ferritin? Do I have... Um, I think I covered almost all the inflammation. Do I have increased 125 over 25 vitamin D? If I have those, if I have a bunch of those markers on my standard metabolic panel, uh, then there's a good indication I got inflammation. I need to know that to then take a look at the rest of the lab work. So now I'm going to go back and look at my thyroid panel. What do I see? Is everything within normal range? First thing to take a look at is reverse T3. 
is it within the normal range? Is it within the optimal range? I don't like reverse T3 being higher than 18. But again, you can't take it at face value because you have to look at reverse T3 in relationship to what your T4 levels are. If you already have low T4 levels, then you can't expect that your reverse T3 is going to be elevated in a cellular hypothyroid state because if your T4 is low, you don't have enough precursor to make reverse T3 to push it out of range. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So many people will say to me, my reverse T3 was normal and I'll look at their lab range. And I'm like, right, but your T4 is really low. So how could you, you don't have enough, you don't have enough T4 to make reverse T3, which is low. So we look at reverse T3. Is it above 18 in my world or above 24 from most labs? Then you're in, then you know, you've got the cellular hypothyroidism going issue going on. The other thing you can take a look at is what we call the T3 to reverse T3 ratio. Uh, it's not a test. You have to do that calculation on your own. So here in the States, I tell people just take their T3 divided by reverse T3 in health. That number should be greater than 10. Okay. Which means your body's favoring more T3, 10 times more T3 than it is reverse T3. Got it? Gotcha. The other thing you can do is you could take free T3 without doing a whole bunch of calculations and just divide it by reverse T3, and that number should be greater than 0.2. If either one of those is, or both of those is below their range, that's an indication of potential cellular hypothyroidism. So now we've got three potential markers, or four. We've got inflammation. We know inflammation will deactivate well, it will increase deiodinase 3, which is the enzyme that deactivates T4, okay? Mm-hmm. Two, we looked at the markers of, we looked at reverse T3 to see if that's elevated. It is, right? Then we know it's our second marker of cellular hypothyroidism. Third marker of cellular hypothyroidism is the ratio, T3 to reverse T3, free T3 to reverse T3. The fourth indicator that we probably have cellular hypothyroidism from labs is the elevation of cholesterol, whether it's cholesterol by itself or VLDL. So those are like four or five key indicators right off the bat, just from your blood panel that you've got cellular hypothyroidism. Now we can take a look at number five, and that is look at your blood sugar markers. If you are insulin resistant, you have cellular hypothyroidism going on, okay? Now, why would I say that? Because if you have cellular stress and your body's deactivating some of the thyroid hormone, it is not going to upregulate glucose transport in bringing glucose into the cell. That is a thing that's not necessary. If you have a cell under stress, the cell is not bringing a lot of glucose into the cell because that would feed the organism, the threat. And you need T3 for GLUT4 transport. So people who aren't sciencey, you need, you need glucose inside your cells. That's a primary fuel source. That glucose has to be transported into the cells through these transport uh, openings. We'll call them windows that are called GLUT transporters. Your GLUT transporter requires insulin. Insulin binds to the GLUT4 transporter and glucose comes into the cell. But for all of that to work, you need your good friend active T3 inside the cell to do that. So anytime you have cellular hypothyroidism, your cells are going to become more insulin resistant. It's not too much carbohydrates, too little exercise. It's cellular stress that triggers insulin resistance. This is huge. 
Wow. It is. Yeah. So we look at people who are skinny, work out, and they go, I'm insulin resistant. Why? Because you're, you're either have a chronic infection, you're overtraining. I mean, for me, the overtraining piece was causing my insulin resistance. It was my cellular stress. And when you have cellular stress, your body has a tendency to deactivate thyroid hormone for these basic recovery things. So I was creating my cellular stress uh, and my insulin resistance. So look at insulin resistance, right? What's their insulin level? If their insulin level is greater than some, some people say five is too, over five is too great. I can give my patients a little wheat leeway and say, if it's over eight, we got, we're starting into insulin resistance, but definitely it shouldn't be over eight if, and cause you're starting into insulin resistance. Look at their hemoglobin A1C. Is that starting to become elevated? If it is, it's a problem. And if their fasting glucose is not between maybe shouldn't be any higher really than 90, you know, and that can be very, that varies so much. It's probably the worst indicator of blood sugar regulation is, is your fasting glucose, but you look at those other markers. Uh, and if the person's insulin resistant, I know they've got a cellular thyroid issue going on because look, if you give a little kid a whole bunch of extra sugar and candy, what happens to them? They, they don't become crazy. Yeah, they go crazy. You give a whole bunch of extra sugar to an adult that's got chronic inflammation or thyroid issues, what happens to them? They fall asleep. Mm. Why? They can't bring glucose into their muscle tissue because they're insulin resistant. So where does it go? It has to go into fat cells. And to put that glucose into fat cells requires a ton of energy, which they already don't have. And that creates an issue. And so they get tired of fatigue because they're zapping their energy even further. So those are some great indicators. And then you go back to their, their health history. Do they have, what are they telling you? Do they have symptoms of hypothyroidism? Do they have symptoms of, of bowel problems? Do they have reflux? Do they have problems with their digestive enzymes? Do they have problems with sleep? Do they snore? Do they take fish oil? Um, you know, th those are all things that you could start to say is, yeah, they have the symptoms of hypothyroidism. They have signs of hypothyroidism. Uh, it's not affecting the gland per se yet, but because I have all these inflammatory markers, I can't even use that normal TSH as a valid marker because it's not valid. Mm. Yeah, the patient's telling you otherwise. You mentioned right. fish oil there. What, what was that about? Um, so we've been telling people fish, fish oil, fish oil, fish oil for years. Listen, uh, you need good, healthy fats in your diet. And, and fish, right, have both, can have some of omega-3 in them, parent omega-3, which is really good for us. The problem is, is that we've taken that and said that fish oil, this adulterated, sometimes, sometimes adulterated oil that we get from fish, uh, is really good for us. And it's really not, we're not giving the people omega-3, we're giving those people uh, derivatives of omega-3, primarily um, EPA and DHA. And so there is tons of, of short-term science studies that show that uh, fish oil can be anti-inflammatory and good for us. The problem is they're short-term studies. The long-term studies start to show something different. And here's the deal. The, the body converts like I think it's less than 5% of omega-3 to EPA and less than 1% of, of omega-3 to DHA. So everybody thought, well, we, everybody's got a problem with the conversion of omega-3 to DHA. Everybody's got a problem. Therefore, we need to give high doses of it. Listen, if everybody only converts less than 1% of omega-3 to DHA, it's probably because that's by design right? And so when we take these super physiologic doses of DHA specifically, 
right? Uh, that DHA becomes incorporated into our cell and mitochondrial membranes. And it really becomes a problem. And there's lots of literature on this, is that when you put that DHA into the mitochondrial membrane, the DHA has more, it displaces your normal omega-6 derivatives from the cell membrane, and the DHA is more reactive. And so if you put a fat that's very reactive right into the mitochondrial membrane, that is highly, is very oxidative, right? What do you think is gonna to happen to that DHA? It gets oxidized quickly, which creates more membrane damage, which create, creates more free radicals. Essentially, I, it's creating more healthcare problems by taking this high dose fish oil. I am not saying don't eat fish. I'm not saying don't take omega, unadulterated omega-6 or unadulterated omega-3. Get it from its natural sources. Don't high-dose fish, fish oil with high-dose EPA and DHA. Body doesn't use those things on a regular basis, and it displaces the normal uh, fats from your cell and, and mitochondrial membranes. So I think it's a big issue. And then if you incorporate those fats and create that cell damage, that membrane damage, now you make more disruption of that mitochondrial membrane you make it harder to transport oxygen across that membrane. You disassociate the electron transport chain inside that mitochondria. And to me, this is a major cause of why we have chronic infections. I mean, you, you know this from, um, from being, in, being in functional medicine for a while. There's this big debate as to what's causing uh, Hashimoto's. Is it Epstein-Barr virus? Is it CMV? Is it HSV? Is it mold? Is it bacteria? Is it yeast? Listen, people, everybody who's listening to this, it doesn't matter. They all do it, right? So here's the, here's the other uh, spoiler alert. You don't get rid of the organisms, okay? So the organisms are either active and create a problem or they're functionally dormant, okay? And so the only reason organisms really give us a hard time is because there's plenty of fuel for those organisms to stay active inside our cells and tissues. The, not, the primary fuel for those organisms is heavy toxins, like iron. Iron is the primo fuel for those organisms. So as long as there is free iron available for organisms, you keep reactivating them. People say, well, I have chronic Lyme or chronic this. or Right, because the fuel is still there. Stop worrying about the organism and start dealing with what's causing the cell stress, the cell damage, and feeding it. And so when people take high-dose fish oil with high-dose DHA, that DHA becomes incorporated into the mitochondrial membrane. The mitochondrial membrane gets damaged. You disassociate the electron transport chain. That frees up free iron. The free iron then is now available to activate the dormant organisms inside your cells. Now you have organism reactivation and chronic low-grade infection. And that becomes part of the cell stress that then causes our cellular hypothyroidism. And then we go, how come I can't get rid of this? Because the fuel is still there. And people are taking high dose fish oil thinking they're doing themselves a good job for the, because it's got this uh, steroidal effect. It does short term, but that high dose DHA, I think is a major issue. All right, sorry, I'm off my soapbox. No, that was, that was one heck of a soapbox, Eric. So could we potentially say that uh, just as medication sometimes forms, potentially high dose fish oil could do the same where it's part of your SOS short term while you look at the bigger picture and move off it in the long term. 
Yeah, or you could just take the par parent oils, right? Why not just yeah. take the parent oils? Take the omega-3, omega-6. They're heavy, they're heavy in plant-based foods. Mm -hmm. So if you take unadulterated, right? So you, you can't, the biggest problem with oils is the way that they're processed and damaged. Yeah. And once you have a damaged oil, then that damaged oil becomes part of your cell membrane. And a damaged oil then um, creates hypoxia. So you think about this, right? We eat processed foods. Processed foods are loaded with damaged oils. Those damaged oils become part of our cell membrane. And if you have a damaged fat part of your cell membrane, you can't transport oxygen across that cell membrane. Now your cells become hypoxic. When you have a hypoxic cell, that means it doesn't have sufficient oxygen. That creates a danger response. And that triggers the cellular hypothyroidism, insulin resistance, and the whole cascade. So can we use omega fatty acids or fish oil? Why don't you just use the parent oils? I, I tell people, eat fish, right? And mm. then get good quality parental oils, the parent omega-3 and a parent omega-6, and the body will make the other stuff from it. Mm, makes sense. Very good. Um, let's talk Hashimoto's in a little bit more detail because sure. it seems like this is, uh, a, it's just people, so many people are battling this um, uh, disease and Often people with Hashimoto's or potentially other autoimmune issues are told they basically need to stop eating everything. And, you know, is this for life? Like, I think I, I just want you to help people see that there are so many things. This is a journey, right? And it gets better. And if you could help us kind of look at what's going on at the start of us having the big bang realization of Hashimoto's and what a long-term healing plan looks like. Yeah. So I, I tell everybody, listen, I mean, for the most part, unless you're full on gluten intolerant or uh, those, those foods are, they may be able to come back there. You may be able to come back, come back. Here's the big issue, right? Food is just a piece of it. Gluten got this, got kind of sexified as the, is the cause of Hashimoto. <laughs> the big and, baddie. Yeah. Right. And the reality is I don't think gluten is the big, big baddie everybody made it out to be. I think there's a problem. We consume way too much. It has been modified a bit. And the third part is, it's, especially in the States, it's, it's loaded with glyphosate, right? And most of the processed foods are fortified with extra iron, which we don't need, right? Unless you're bleeding out, you don't need a ton of extra iron in the diet. So we've got fortified uh, grains loaded with glyphosate that disrupts our gut biome. It becomes a toxin. Um, and, and we've modified the wheat. So and we consume it and everything. So I think that's the issue. I think for most people, what they need to do is they under, need to understand what's causing their cell stress. And for them, if they have gutty issues, yeah, you got to go back to what we call an anti-inflammatory diet as the beginning process, right? Mm -hmm. I tell everybody, listen, my goal for you long-term is to eat real food 80% of the time and enjoy yourself about 20% of the time. That's our long-term goal because nobody's going to be pristine. I mean, there's a couple of people out there that are going to be like, they don't eat anything. They don't drink anything. They just, it's water and vegetable and a small piece of meat periodically. Uh, that's not the vast majority of people. And you look at that and you go, you know, what? I want to enjoy some, I, you know, I want to enjoy some of this food that's available. Great. But 80% of the time, once you get yourself healthy, eat well, sleep well, digest well, all those things well, and you should be pretty good. When you, Go into that 20% of the time and you feel, realize that, hey, I don't feel good when I eat that, when I drink that. Uh, don't do that very often. Mm -hmm. Okay. But in the beginning piece of it, 
you, the reason we put you on a restrictive diet is because almost anything you eat when you have dysbiosis or GI damage or lack of stomach acids and enzymes, almost anything you eat, you can create some reactivity to. And so we want to kind of, to kind of clean up the diet, get rid of all the processed food, all the processed oils, all the excess sugars. Those are the things that we're really trying to accomplish and get rid of. And then if we have to narrow it down even more, but it's really getting back to a whole food diet is the goal for almost everybody. I think in, from a Hashimoto's perspective is, is it gluten? Is it dairy? Is it, it could be anything. Again, anything your body perceives as the stressor could be your trigger for driving your Hashimoto's. And for most people, it's not one thing. It's mm -hmm. a combination of factors. So we need to look at, I always, talk about these things as a bit of a soup and there's lots of ingredients in the soup and you got to take it back to being a totally plain broth and then just kind of see what each thing and you know how it impacts you and that really just helps people visualize that there's no one big baddie we're chasing after it's often a combination things or it's often something that is the straw that breaks the camel's back that then gets latched onto as the thing. I've been through that in my own health journey. I think we all have, if, if we've had any kind of chronic issues. So yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, you talked about mold, right? And you'd say, mm. okay, wait, I, got, I had mold illness. And th that was real, right? Mm. So the issue becomes, was that the primary or was it that your, all the other things became the stressors and the toxicity of the mold in the environment you had was the straw that broke the camel's back, right? Mm. Because there are people that have been living in mold and mold infested environments, right? For mm. thousands of years. Why is it now that we have such a big mold issue? I think we've got so much stress, right? hundred percent. Yeah. That's added to that mix, right? We've got all of these at the end of our seesaw is a whole bunch of five pound weights and we just keep stacking them up. Mm. And because they're little five pound weights added incrementally, we don't realize that my sleep disruption is a part of my problem. My breathing is a part of my problem. My, my diet's a part of my problem. The pathogens, the mold, the toxins, all, we don't realize all those individual things. If we dropped a hundred pound weight on that end of the seesaw, we would know that that hundred pound weight was what was making me work so hard. Yeah. But it's the small little incremental things. And then it just needs one last thing to push us over the edge. I always say that the biggest challenge for people, especially those struggling with thyroid issues is, you know, we have like a paper cup in the bathroom, like that you rinse your mouth out with. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if you have a paper cup and you overfill it, you would know that there was a problem, right? You'd go, yeah. Oh, I overfilled it. And then that's easy to diagnose and identify. But what gets most thyroid patients is they look pretty good on the outside, just like that paper cup, but you see water on the counter and you're like, I don't get it. Where could the water come from? We haven't overfilled it. There's only half of, of a cup in there. Huh, where's it coming from? And what we don't realize is that when you never empty the paper cup, it actually erodes the cup from the bottom, right? And so you see the mess but the cup looks good. And so we see it. I see it all the time. You probably see it in your practice. You see the person who's struggling. They look, they look fine. I mean, they look healthy. They look, they're fairly, they're not morbidly obese. You know, their, their hair's not all falling out, but they're like you and me. I mean, they look nor what we would call normal, but they're tired, fatigued. They're constipated. They're irritable. They're not sleeping. And we go, you look good, right? The cup good but yeah you know ah, those are just normal symptoms of aging those are just normal symptoms of stress 
And in the meantime, that person is breaking down, but because the exterior looks so good, you go, it's not that bad, right? Yeah. Same thing, look at the car. Hey, the car's not rusted. Yeah, but there's no engine, right? There's no engine. Doesn't help. Have a problem. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned constipation there and something, that's something either constipation or diarrhea on a sliding scale, I guess, um, that people with thyroid issues can experience and hypo and constipation are like best buddies, right? So how is it, is it really a matter of treating that cellular um, level issue and then everything else kind of resolves around it? Is that what we're doing? Yeah. So foundationally, you've got to get to those root issues. In the yeah. meantime, you've got to give some Band-Aid care. So if I know a patient can't, they've got constipation, I got to help them support bowel movement, right? Yeah. I got to figure out what's the best way to get those, that bowel movement moving because the longer that food sits in the bowel, the more it ferments, the more bacterial overgrowth. So I have to do, I have to do emergency care and long-term care and palliative care all at the same time. And so, yeah, I got to work on all those systems. So if they have low stomach acid, if they're, if they're cellular hypothyroidism and they, have, and they have signs and symptoms of low stomach acid, I need to support that. If they have poor bile physiology, I need to support that. If their pancreatic enzymes are deficient, I need to support that. Uh, if they have systemic inflammation, I, I got to support it. I don't want to suppress it, but I do want to support. I want to support the natural mechanism. I prefer to use like for our, um, to, to kind of calm the inflammatory cascade is not to take a whole bunch of antioxidants and anti-inflammatory individual ones, but to, to turn on NRF2 or reestablish NRF2 since that's the body's natural yeah. anti-inflammatory antioxidant detoxification process. So mm -hmm. I like to use either broccoli sprouts or sulforaphane as a primary way to address that. I need to support the bowel movement motility while I work on kind of calming the bacterial cascade, you know, knock those things down but then I got to restore the normal physiology there. So whatever the stress is, I got to deal with those. So you're trying to do a whole bunch of things really at the same time, but try and keep it organized for the patient. Like, hey, this week we're working on your diet, right? So let's get that geared in. And here's some products that we're going to, we're going to start working on your gut because we know the gut's a problem. We got to get the biofilms broken down. We got to knock down the organisms a little bit. And then we got to put the acids and enzymes back into the system so that they can start to create um, some new reestablish the, the innate immunity in that GI tract. And then, you know, you're working on systemic inf inf inflammation and then you're working on their sleep and their breathing. You got to work on really all of these processes uh, in an organized fashion over time. Mm, it's like, a, it's a big network, isn't it? There's no uh, yeah. one silver bullet and it really is just lots of pieces of the puzzle. And so when, how do you decide what to work on first when there's a whole bunch of stuff going on? Yeah. So that really comes down to what's the patient's found. What is, what's the primary thing that brings them in your office? Because if you yeah. don't pay attention to what your patient's saying, like if they're saying my hormones, my hormones, my hormones, mm. I'm going to do a hormone test because yeah. that's the thing that's driving them in. That's the thing they're concerned about. I don't want them to think I'm ignoring them, but I would say nine times out of 10, uh, I'll work on, I know there's nine things I need to work on with everybody from diet to sleep, to, to breathing, to physical activity. Um, but how I pick what I need to start with first, 70 to 80% of the immune system surrounds the GI tract. I think that's probably one of the primary areas we need to start with diet and GI function because mm -hmm. it doesn't do you much good to put a bunch of supplementation into a GI tract that can't absorb it appropriately. So we, for the most part, we start there. So I try and center my visits around every visit. We're working on a lifestyle factor. 
Um, and then uh, we're working on a, on a process or a protocol. Gut, work on making sure we got inflammatory mechanisms. We're supporting those, not suppressing them, but supporting them. Um, then we're working on detoxification. Uh, typically, we're do, working on that at the same time, but the heavier focus on detoxification, once we get gut is a little bit better managed, and then we're starting to break down um, hormones, adrenal, all those things. So mm. it really comes down to the individual patient. What is their number one thing? I don't sleep at night. Okay. I got to probably get to look at the adrenals and see what's going on there. Or I'm so exhausted. I can't do anything. All right. I got to get that done first, get some band-aid approach there. But I would say I typically always look at diet and gut as the, as the initial primaries and then whatever their top three complaints are, that's where I go. Yeah. Nice. And medication. So obviously a lot of people that would be coming into your door would be on some sort of thyroid hormone, like, and then coming to you in their SOS state saying, how can you help me get off this stuff? Mm -hmm. um, so how does someone know, is it, is it about working with someone such as yourself uh, to really make sure that every step of the way they're knowing exactly when and how they can reduce that thyroid hormone really experimenting but with professional support the whole way yeah so yeah what, we, what i tell patients I, I didn't put you on it i'm not taking you off of it but what we need to do is monitor monitor and you can't do it three to six months at a time you have to mm -hmm. sometimes run those tests a little bit sooner because as soon as you start reducing those uh stressors uh and the cellular thyroid physiology starts to kick in a bit you're going to see it in the labs and you got to be willing to or you gotta be ready to have that patient go back and talk to their primary care and say, Hey, look, I'm hyperthyroid. I'm hyperthyroid now. <laughs> it's um, kicked me off again. Yeah. 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 So, um, we got to take a look at those values and usually I help my patients kind of understand the, the best way to express it with their docs. Um, some docs are really, some docs are open into working directly with us. Uh, other docs are, you know, kind of take it as an affront that somebody else is kind of, saying what to do. And so I, I totally understand that, that. And I don't want it to be about egos or the doctors. It should be about the patient. So I always try and get the patient to say, how about we take a look at this? Or can we take a look, you know, just phrase it so that they, the doctor doesn't feel like they're being told what to do, but that they're being helped to, into making the right decision. Mm -hmm. Right. And half the time, it's really just about being honest with yourself as to whether you really have the right people in place in your team and whether yeah. they make you feel encouraged and empowered um, rather than it being about the egos. This should, the central figure in this scenario is the patient. Yeah, I think a lot of people are in fear mode, especially here in the US. I mean, mm. it takes to make three months, maybe sometimes to get into an endocrinologist and somebody who they think is the best endocrinologist, right? But the reality is uh, your medical doctor and your endocrinologist, even the best one, are typically running the same two tests and providing mm. the same medication. Um, and so the goal is, is that sometimes people are like, well, this is the best doctor. Uh, well, how long have you been seeing them? 10 years. And you've been struggling and getting worse over the 10 years? Yeah, but they're the best. Okay, if you didn't have insurance, would you pay for that care? No. Why? Well, because I'm not getting better. Then because somebody else, a third party is paying for it, you're, you're going to continue to pay for it. Listen, insurance allows um, many times doctors that aren't really fantastic at what they're doing, uh, at really doing the doctoring part, right? Uh, they're good at prescribing based on... Um, 
you know, a guideline, but they're not really doing the good job old school doctoring. It allows them to get by because if you can just give a prescription for every symptom, I mean, that's, that's pretty straightforward. That's pretty easy. Really what we want the doctor to do is help the patient understand what's causing their illness, what's causing their dysfunction, and then help them uh, fix that so that they don't need drugs and medication, right? And so I think for most people, if, if you're not getting the results that you want with the physician that you're with, or you don't feel like you're making progress, uh, life's too short. I mean, you got to go look for another approach. And there are plenty of functional and integrative docs out there who are, uh, or are willing to help and be fair to the functional medicine community as well. They're not all experts in, in what they're doing either, right? And some are just using supplements to do what medicine does, which is, oh, you have, uh, you've got uh, high reverse T3, take selenium. Well, that doesn't fix it, right? We tell people and we're trying to band-aid every symptom a person has with a supplement. And that's not how it works either. The best functional medicine doctor typically has the, their patient take the least amount of supplementation. Oh, that is the best thing I've heard this this year so far. I think for people on long-term health uh, health exploratory journeys, let's call it. I hate the term chronic illness. Um, so I think it's uh, that that's fantastic. And to just really, I always say fire fast. Like if you've seen someone a couple of times, you're just not vibing together. You're not feeling like they're on your team, and you're not feeling like anything's going to get better with what they've suggested. And you, you just, you know it in your gut when you, you know, when you know and to just fly yeah. fast and go, it's absolutely nothing against you. I just need a different, different direction. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so we could talk all day and I really do feel a part two coming on because <laughs> I'm looking at the time going, it ain't going to happen today. Um, but yeah. I am just so thrilled with uh, everything we have covered. Eric, you've been so generous with your, uh, time and explanations and really just helping people see the wood from the trees on basic thyroid physiology, cell health and, uh, and what's happening in the cells. To finish today's chat, could you share what your favourite let's keep our thyroid healthy um, tips are? Yeah, and it really comes back to, I mean, these things aren't sexy, but they come down to foundational health. You've yeah. got to reduce the stressors that you got going on. So number one, if you sleep less than seven, eight hours of solidly through the night, uh, you got to work on that. If you're shortening your, your sleep time, that's the number one thing you got to change. You got to get into seven, eight hours of good quality sleep, get a tracking device, um, BioStrap or Ring, something like that. Yeah. So that you can monitor what your sleep. They're not perfect, but they're better than nothing. Okay. Mm -hmm. So sleep becomes key. If you're a mouth breather and most, the only way you're going to know is if you, if you know you have cavities, gum disease, or your doctors, your dentist has told you, or the person that you lay next to has told you, you snore, right? Um, you got to fix that because when you're a mouth breather, you create hypoxia all night. You're going to deactivate thyroid home. You're going to create cellular stress. You're going to create insulin resistance. So you got to work on that. Three, eat real food. Don't worry. I mean, we've done a terrible injustice in, in the fun, in the healthcare world by we, we, everybody's come up with a diet. I know we've, it, we've totally overcomplicated. We, we've circled the wagons and we're shooting in at each other. No paleo <laughs> better than keto, which is better. Listen, the, the thing that the common theme of all those diets is they're all about real food. 
They're, yeah. None of them are about eating more processed food, not one of them. So eat more real food, keep it that simple. And then you need to be active and exercise every day, right? Within a realm of what you're trying to accomplish. And it's different and what you need is a little bit different, but some type of cardio, strength training, yoga, all those things, whatever you like to do, but be more active, right? And then the fourth thing to do is you gotta watch your headspace. You have to be conscious of what goes on between the six inches of your ears. If you are beating yourself up, you talk to yourself most in any given day. If you're beating yourself up, that's creating cellular stress. Uh, so fix those. Those four or five things require no money, right? Mm, all they require that's the crazy thing. We overcomplicate it all so much. And it all comes back to checking in on those four things. And they're the, they're the, they're the hardest. They're the, I'm, they're the simplest things to fix, but they're not the easiest things to fix. So focus on those. Don't worry about supplements. Don't worry about all the extraneous stuff. Fix those things first. If you don't, if you can't get them, get a coach, get a functional medicine practitioner. If you can fix them, um, you're going to probably see you feel dramatically different by changing those things. Mm. Okay? And if people are on supplements now and needing to check in with those basics, you could stay on them for now, right? And really start to feel your way through not needing them anymore. Absolutely. Say uh, that? Yes. Yeah. Supplements are meant to supplement, supplement a good diet, lifestyle, and nutrition, right? Not to be the diet, right? You can't, mm. you can't, you can't drug yourself healthy. You can't supplement yourself healthy. It's just not going to happen. You have to deal with those other aspects of your physiology. Amazing, Eric. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoy having these conversations and bringing them to you. Now, where can you find me and Lotox Life from here on in? Well, you've obviously got lotoxlife.com and there we have everything beautifully organized into food, home, body and mind topics as well as kids and a whole bunch of free downloadables and resources to help you, inspire you to take community action and there's amazing A to Z recipes there if you're ever getting a little bit stale in the kitchen and a whole bunch of articles that I've written. You can also find me on Instagram at Lotox Life and also on Facebook by page the same name. I make everything super easy, Lotox Life, so you can find it really, really simply. Thank you so much to everybody who leaves a five-star review over on Stitcher or iTunes or wherever it is that you tune into the show. And also to let you know that you can join us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Lotox Life and come join the private Lotox Life Club. In there, over time, more and more cool stuff is about to be added. It's a place where we can continue the conversations, chat about the weekly show, you're going to get bonus Q&A and all sorts of things over time. I explain everything over on Patreon, so I encourage you to check that out. And in the meantime, I'll see you next week.